Drilling fluids touch just about everything in the drilling process. We're here to deconstruct the drilling process and drilling fluid concepts to provide a deeper understanding of our industry. In each episode, we'll share information, talk to interesting people, and maybe share a few stories along the way. Welcome to The Flow Line, a production of AES Drilling Fluids, brought to you by Matt Offenbacher and Justin Gautier. And welcome back to another episode. We are here back on The Flow Line in the studio. Matt, you're back from Midlantis, back from the holidays. Man, you ready to crush December now? Yes, I would love to crush December. If that's a thing, I would love to be crushing it. (laughs) Well, it's a good time of year. Everyone's coming off of Thanksgiving. Most people are happy and enjoyed their time with hopefully family and friends. And if you're on a rig, again, we certainly appreciate the commitment to all our mud engineers. We did a Thanksgiving episode, which if you're a frequent listener, you would have heard. But Matt, how was the Thanksgiving holidays, man? It went much better. We ended up flying up to Columbus, Ohio, Oh wow! and that was like a Wednesday night through Friday morning with an 18-month-old and a five-year-old. Is this something I wanted to do? No. Is it something that my wife bought plane tickets and told me where to be? Yes. But it actually went fine. It was surprising how nice everybody was at the airport, which I, in some ways, I'm like, so they're capable of it. Right. Like, I'm a little bit disappointed because I flew to Midland the week before and they weren't so polite. Okay. You're talking about the people here or the people in Ohio? Everywhere. Well, Ohio, I don't go to Ohio very often. So maybe they're just nice Midwesterners all the time. Yeah. Anyway, super nice to my kids on the plane and everything. And you know, it's extra work when they're small children. Everybody did okay. We got to see some family, including my wife's grandmother, just people that are maybe not going to be around for forever. And so it's just nice to have those family connections, especially with my boys getting to meet her and everything. And there's a whole like, farm up there that we had Thanksgiving at. And so kids got to run around and very cool. Yeah. Animals at the farm. No, it's more of a like crops. It's one of those, like, I guess what hipsters do now is like a cannery and like the barn is converted to like an event space. And then, okay. So they just live on a bunch of land and grow some wheat, maybe corn. Yeah. I mean, corn is the big thing in Ohio, corn and soybeans. So yeah. What's the big potato state? That's Idaho. Idaho, right. Okay, not Ohio. Well, that's good. Sound yeah. like, I mean, you made it back. Any major flight delays like last Christmas with Southwest? Cause I heard no, we were quick in and quick out. I was just so worried about huge crowds and everything mm. and all the two-car seats, like hauling all that stuff. Oh. And right. thankfully that went fine. So no huge delays. We got home on a Friday afternoon, got settled and everything. Had a couple of days to decompress. Yeah. But like, how about yourself? Yeah, no, it was good. I had my mom fly in. So again, flying through. Bush International during the holidays. She came on a Sunday and then left on a Sunday. Yeah, the lineup to pick her up and drop her off was crazy. But besides that, I mean, yeah, it was great. Kids had fun. Just a small group of us. And to your point, my grandmother-in-law is in her 90s and Mm. still trucking along. But yeah, she came and ate a bunch of food and super impressed with that. She was loving it. And the day before that, we went to her, uh, she lives in a like a assisted living place. And so we brought a Christmas tree, a mini one, like a four foot one with Christmas lights. And my kids decorated it. And so she was just loving it. Yeah. Yeah. Cause we were there a couple of weeks ago and I call her grandma. I'm like, grandma, you fired up for Christmas. And you know, she's 90. So she's like, well, you know, there's not going to be much happening around here. And 
I was like, well, where not you? if I have anything to say about this. <laughs> yeah. I was like, are you doing a Christmas tree? And she was like, I haven't had a Christmas tree in years. And I was like, we're getting you a Christmas tree. And so, yeah, we bombed over there and did that. So that was fun. And so, yeah, just everyone's having fun. Thanksgiving was good. And, and for a lot of people, Tom was like, oh yeah, between Thanksgiving and Christmas, it's, you know, we get to take our foot off the gas and no one's working. And it's like, speak for yourselves. Yeah. What are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, for Oldfield services, I feel like between Thanksgiving and Christmas, it doesn't really slow down. It's like everyone's trying to wrap up year end and get ready for the following. Well, I was talking to somebody about this, and I think it depends on what you do in oil field services. But it used to feel like, granted, operators, and look, if you're an operator and you're listening to this, call me out. But like my general impression is you have your drilling budget and your objectives, and you sandbag them so that you're going to finish all the wells you need to for your bonus by like... Halloween. <laughs> Maybe a little bit, but you've got some room to work with if there's scheduling delays or whatever, where everything that's set before you is going to get done. And then you pretty much don't want to see any of your vendors or anything like that. Like you do some future well planning and then you just kind of shut her down unless like, let's say the price of oil spikes or like there's a rig available for like a one-off, you know, you could do a pad really quick at a good deal yeah. and kind of get ahead of things. But otherwise, you don't want to see any of us. <laughs> On the customer-facing side, there's fewer interruptions of like the day-to-day -day rig schedule, like less intensity there. Mm -hmm. In some ways, it felt like you could relax too, but I did a customer mud school last year on like December 14th or something. Like, I'll be traveling that week. I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. If things do slow down, it's a great time for training or some personal development. Yeah. But I feel, like I said, pretty slammed knowing that January, all of a sudden, everybody's going to come back and be ready to rip. So, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. I mean, for us, there was kind of to your point, we did a bunch of bids in November and so preparing for 2024. So November flew by and was crazy hectic. And again, things booked up all the way up until Christmas. But again, it's all good things. I'm certainly not complaining, but it's fun. And so the show must go on regardless of if we're with a hundred rigs or a thousand rigs. And one thing that is always interesting to kind of look back at, we've talked about it regarding technology and different systems is a lot of what we do in drilling fluids is something that it sort of resurfaces. We sort of improve upon. And again, this is kind of an idea that you came up with was let's talk about the history of drilling fluids. I mean, you could Google it and, and probably get a good idea, but I think it'd be fun for you and I to talk about how this all started and then kind of where it's at today. What do you think? Yeah. And I think I kind of wanted to focus on, I don't know if you call it the ancient history, but like all the predecessor stuff, I feel like we'll cover it all, except for some of it, I'm probably going to get the dates wrong, but I did some of my own research. But one of the greatest synopses was a book. I wish I could attribute it better. It just said manual of drilling fluids technology on the front. And it had a section on just the history of fluids. And it was like, oh, cool. And that's where a lot of this stuff sort of comes from. But you also realize, like, you hear the stories of, like, so-and-so invented this. And it's like, well, they didn't actually invent it, but, like, they're the one who got famous for it or what have you. Right. It appears there's a lot of, especially going way back when, people came up with ideas a gazillion miles apart independently at about the same time. Hmm. So who do you give credit? When was it written down? All that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. So this is going to be more a vague history, uh, but hopefully provides a little bit of inspiration to give you an idea of kind of how far we've come, especially getting into from where it all began, if you will, from just old water to the fancy stuff we have today. Yeah. Well, for a lot of us, when we think of drilling, we think of just typical rotary drilling, right? Like when was the first well drilled? And it was wherever that was, Titusville, Pennsylvania or something like that here in the U.S. But 
drilling dates back far before we started drilling for oil. Yeah. We were drilling into the, the earth well before that, Matt. So let's go way, way back pre-rotary drilling, man. When did that all start? You can go into like BC era, right? China and even Egypt, there are like these illusions of at least trying to drill water wells and that sort of thing where when we say rotary drilling, we think of the rotary, right? Pipe rotate, turning to the right. Yeah. Except for before they had all that fancy pants equipment, what they would do is basically you would have a, I don't know how to describe it over, I'm trying to talk with my hands and that just doesn't seem <laughs> applicable for a podcast, but think of almost like a boom hanging over and a weight on the end of it and just like smacking that into the ground. Percussion is what they would call it. And oh, like okay. pre-rotary, that's what a lot of it was. And if you watch like There Will Be Blood, they'll show, mm-hmm. that, but it's basically like just repeatedly pounding the ground and pulverizing the rock beneath it. Hmm. And usually they were trying to get for salt was valued back then. So like brine or water, we're trying to drill into a salt cavern or salt area and wash out and get salt back. But basically you're smashing rock with a weight and then you'd basically break up the rock and then put a scoop in there and scoop it out and keep going. Hmm. And you're probably not drilling very deep, but it probably suffices for what you're trying to accomplish way back when to get some water out of the ground. One has to think, Oh, it's the footage. Like, I would think more than 100 feet. Probably not, huh? Like, I feel like that'd be even tough. It was interesting because there were a few things that alluded to some of the stuff was like 60 feet. And some of it was surprisingly deeper than that as people got more sophisticated with this stuff. There is this one piece alluded to. They would acknowledge, like, dumping buckets of water into the hole to basically, like, soften things up and free up more cuttings before they scoop them out. And it's not really drilling fluid. Kind of. It's a bucket of water, but like we're thinking here, fluids have a purpose. That's sort of the ancients all the way up until you get to like the mid 1800s. That was how it was done. And then people were started thinking about a few more things. And we start working our way towards rotary rigs by the 1860s. But leading up to that, they're coming up with tools that will actually allow water to flush through them. So 1845, it's noted that this French engineer named Favel drills a well, and he's using a water-flushed set of tools. Some of these had very weird circulating mechanisms and that sort of thing. It wasn't like circulating fluid constantly. But he got the idea, apparently, when they drilled into a pressurized water zone and noticed that water rushing up the annulus was actually carrying cuttings out of the well, too. I was like, hey, what if we flush some stuff through there and got some stuff out? And this is only water, and so, like... It did what water does. If you're in an unconsolidated formation or whatever, it maybe washed it out and worked against you. So it wasn't one of those things that everybody was like, hey, man, this is how we're going to drill from now on. Mm -hmm. But those ideas weren't necessarily lost. And as you kind of advance a little bit more, this sugar refinery, one of their methods for drilling was to pump fluid down the backside and carry the cuttings up inside the pipe. And Mm. they bothered to point out that if you caught anything too big, it would just pack everything off, which made that a less attractive move. But then we start working towards actual rotary rigs. And it's not just one rotary rig. Everybody's got different methods to power these things and rotate the pipe and that kind of thing. But the theme is rotary string and diamond studded drill bits or that kind of thing are starting to come in from like fish paddle and teeth cut into the end of a piece of pipe. We're actually using something hard to grind away rock. And now we're ready to circulate a little bit because we don't have the pumps. So what they would do is drill a little bit, circulate a little bit, try and like flush it out. But you weren't drilling at a very high ROP. Right. You know, I thought that was kind of interesting where it's like, hey, how long have we not been able to have the pump rates that we want? 
stories all the time. Am I right? <laughs> no kidding. Crazy. And then you start getting into like vague illusions of where mud actually comes to be. And there was one thing in the literature citing this guy Chapman, and he had a patent where he mentions using a stream of water and plastic material to form an impervious wall. And some of the ingredients he was using were clay, bran, grain, LCMs, am I right? Yeah. And even cement, basically to plaster up the wall, which it's like, hey, so now we're talking about like cutting conveyance and fluid loss control, right? Yeah, yeah. This is sort of the fabled story I like to, if you've attended one of our customer mud schools, this is where I say it all began because it's a better story, but like obviously spindle top. So October 1900, they go to drill the well. And guess what? If you drilled on the Gulf Coast, you know how many unconsolidated sands there are and that sort of thing interbedded with very reactive clays. And the driller named Kurt Hamill, he noticed, you know, well, the fluid thickened when it encountered this clay and it kind of lined the walls of the well bore. And so as they're having issues, they had cattle like walk through the pit of their water supply, kick up the dirt and create actual mud. They were circulating it intentionally to seal up those loose sands and provide a wall cake. Mm. Not spindle top, so it's famous already. You can actually hear... There's like audio recordings of the guys on the rig telling the story of Spindletop and everything. They're like super old timey and that sort of thing. Yeah, um, that's crazy. Now we're talking mud mud. So early 1900s, somewhere between 1880 and 1900s, people are starting to figure out I can do something with this. Mm-hmm. Hasn't become much of a science. Just throw some dirt in the well. But then you start to see even more advanced mud systems kind of through a series of patents that I think are significant. So I thought I'd put some of those out there. One is for weighted mud using barium sulfate, iron oxide, lead oxide, that kind of thing. That patent was assigned to the National Pigments and Chemical Company out of Missouri, where they were sourcing bayrite. We're not getting any bayrite from Missouri anymore, but that bayrite was used for paints, and now we were using it to weight drilling fluid, but a subsidiary of the National Lead Company. And the trade name of this bayrite product for drilling fluids was called Bayroid. Huh. which is a drilling fluids company today. Right. So it was like, throw some Bayroid in there. Oh. That was the trade name for Bayrite. No kidding. Um, and even further down the line, we get to the 30s and bentonite was patented as a fluid additive. So applied for before 35, but like that's when it was issued. We're starting to see, right? We got gel, we got Bayrite. Here's a question. What did they suspend the Bayrite with before they had the bentonite? Hmm. That just came to my mind as yeah, we were talking. Yeah, no, because but, one became before the other, obviously. I mean, yeah. I don't know. An interesting thing about that, though, is Bayrite for paints is pretty fine. So it may have just so sat in there. It may have not needed as much suspension. And in fact, some of the early, like, low sag, micronized, fine grind Bayrite, like some of the very first use cases from, like, way back when, mm-hmm. were just using paint pigment grade Bayrite instead of API Bayrite, which has a specific size, you know, a screen size. Makes sense. I'd be remiss without mentioning direct emulsions have been around for a very long time. And I've mentioned that before. Yeah. But this is one where it's kind of hard to hang your hat on it because even the literature talks about that's old talks about direct emulsions being old. People realized that if there were droplets of oil in their water-based mud, they were getting better fluid loss control from those droplets. They were getting some lubricity. And so that was definitely happening. But the thing is, there was a time when you were just drilling into a hydrocarbon bearing zone and you let it blend in while you drilled ahead. And then there was obviously a time when it was like, let me put this in on purpose because it's helping. When is that inflection point where somebody is like, aha, 
I did this on purpose or I will use this anyways. Yeah. So that's kind of the direct emulsion story. And then we move forward. I didn't get into too much of the specifics. I wanted to get this like prehistory, if you will, pre 50s, 60s, 50s and 60s. You start getting into invert emulsions. So oil based mud where they figure out that if I have a aqueous internal phase, mm-hmm. I can balance that water activity. I get some fluid loss control. I get these other benefits and you get your wholesale oil based mud that we know and love today. Yeah. And then kind of jumping ahead, the early 90s, early to mid 90s, we start looking at synthetic oils and the products that work with those. Mid 80s, you're talking about PHPA muds, which we've done an episode on, and then kind of how impactful they were in a lot of drilling environments. Early 2000s, you get your clay-free or low ECD kind of deep water muds. Mm-hmm. And at that time, you're also getting interesting things like you're getting high-performance water-based muds, like premium shale inhibitors and that sort of thing, reservoir drilling fluids, so fluids designed specifically to minimize formation damage. Yeah, Formation damage was known before then, but like it wasn't that you used a special fluid to drill a reservoir and there weren't open-hole completions like they are. Right. Anyways, that's sort of a general timeline of, I think, where we're at today. Yeah, I think it's really neat to look back at that. And, I mean, a lot of folks including myself, you say, where did drilling fluid start? I said, oh, it was when the cows mashed in the mud and then they created this goop or whatever, and then they used that. But to your point, what you've talked about there, it goes far beyond that way back in the day. But I'm curious if you look at where we're at today, what is the most recent sort of technological advancement in drilling fluids? Because a lot of the stuff like we've talked about it, it was designed for one thing and then we sort of took it and made it better. But what would you say is the most recent like micronized weight material, especially like the super fine stuff has been around for a while, but I think the combination of micronized weight material with these flat rheology, clay free, whatever you want to call them, muds mm-hmm. for like really extreme wells. I think that's probably one of the, the other big advance is like super high temperature oil-based muds, like the Gulf of Thailand type stuff. Like we talked about in a recent episode about just like, are we stagnating? What's going on is like, you're getting more and more niche. Like there's fewer and fewer wells that need a specific technology, right? Everybody had some form of reactive clay they wanted to deal with. And there was a lot of ground to be covered if you could take a step forward in that. Lots of people are drilling deep water wells and dealing with high ECDs. As you address that, like the problems were maybe less pronounced. There's not like one sweeping fluid system that is going to maybe make the next step forward. Never say never. But I think those systems are very interesting chemistry and steps forward. I think some of the high temperature polymers for water-based mud are kind of interesting, albeit expensive. But the most important thing to me now is knowing everything in your toolkit, because there's a lot of stuff that people have picked up and walked away from, or think about like late eighties MMH, or there's still applications for some of this stuff. And the biggest home run you can hit is to know exactly when to use it and when to not use it and to be well-versed enough in it to bring it to the table when it's necessary. Yeah, I love the way you put that. There's been so many different combinations of different fluids and different technologies. And because unconventionals, our level of exploration has come down. And so the very unique wells that we're having to engineer and spend months preparing for and having different fluid sets and perhaps different tank farms. And I haven't done that in a long time. Offshore may be a different world, but I'm speaking just here, U.S. land. The need for exotics are not quite there. A lot of people probably that have been joining the industry anytime after, say, 2010 or 11, probably haven't really found the need to have anything exotic and maybe a little bit of high-performance water-based mud here and there. And 
some other technologies that they realized afterwards they didn't probably need. Yeah, it's just like we haven't really had any purpose to go outside the boundaries of what we're used to. But clearly there's a bunch of tools in the toolbox and we've talked about just almost all of them. But I think to your point is like know when to use them, know what their limitations are and yeah, find the right application for the right need and away you go. And I think there's a lot of people laid the groundwork for the success we have today. And so we don't have to learn those lessons twice. You always want to be thinking about blue sky. Like you never want to confine yourself to, man, this is what's out there. So this is what I'm going to do. But you've also got a business to run and you got to be practical. And so I don't want anybody to think that we don't reach. But I also think that there's so much untouched opportunity with a lot of stuff that people have either forgotten about or the wells changed, the way we drill has changed. So what made them fade into the background way back when, they're relevant again in new ways. Even what we've learned, you can take a chemical and find out its specific components now, and you can change ratios and relationships in ways where you can be so much more precise. And we've been able to do that in some neat ways, come with some really good products or make what used to be a run-of-the-mill thing much, much better. I think there's some excitement in the basics. I hope to be part of something someday where, like, I was on a team that did X. I hope we haven't stopped innovating in that way. And then I think you never know what you're going to run into. Like, is it going to be by accident or what have you, right? Yeah. No, some of the greatest inventions and innovations come from accident. It's like, we accidentally combined this with this, thinking we were supposed to do this, and Lo and behold, we found something that we didn't realize we would. And then there you go. And you've got the, whether the new technology or the new product. I think, again, it's important to push the boundaries, but understand you have a business to run at the same time. And so there's a fine balance. But if any listeners out there have anything they'd like to add to the conversation, please reach out, connect with us either on LinkedIn, or you can reach us at the Flowline podcast at aesflues.com. Matt, I already started my spiel, but anything else to add to that? I mean, you kind of summed it up nicely there. No, I think that's good. It'd be interesting to see, especially if there's some other folks who are part of these things, you know, would be happy to chime in and even add more context than yeah what we could cover so briefly. Yeah, exactly. Well, uh, again, for the listeners, we genuinely appreciate all the hours of listening that you've done with us. And I hope you have a great holiday season. December is upon us. 2024 is around the corner. Lots of exciting stuff to look forward to. Make sure you check us out on YouTube as well. Connect with the AES Fluids page on LinkedIn. We're constantly putting great content out there. And with that said, take care, everyone. Be safe. Until next time. Take care. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of The Flow Line. And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.